Support for Talking Art on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Kit Poland, Associate Principal Bassist with the Quad City Symphony Orchestra. Thanks for joining us today, Kit. Thanks so much for having me. This year has brought so many changes for all of us, but musicians and other artists have had to cope with an even greater upheaval as their entire livelihood changed. As an artist, what is one unexpected gift that you discovered? Uh, More than anything, time. In the pre-pandemic days, we were performing a new concert every week. I know you talked to Emily Emily Nash and Bruno Silva before and we yeah we all freelance. It's a different concert every week often with a different orchestra every week uh which is amazing. I love it, but it is a very taxing schedule and once the pandemic hit everything stopped and it stopped for a long time for artists and we had to kind of figure out what to do with ourselves and that just opened up time and i think the biggest thing that time gave us was kind of the ability to be artists where when you're in the weekly i I don't want to say the weekly grind because that makes it sound um way less enjoyable than it is but um just the weekly schedule the weekly concert schedule uh, I sometimes think of it as more of a craft than an art at times where you, your, your craft is just playing this instrument, interpreting this music in different ways, whatever music, the orchestra or group that has hired you that week wants you to play. You don't get a lot of, uh, um, artistic freedom, um, in, uh, programming choices and, and now, now we have the time to think of everything for ourselves. Um, now we have the space uh, to kind of daydream. Everything isn't, I have, I have to learn this music in this amount of days. Um, and you just don't have a lot of freedom there. Well, I think for, you know, all of us, not just musicians, the, that aspect of time, this gift really of of having um, the ability to to, to reflect is, is really important. And, you know, I've been musing about the loss of live music and other things during the pandemic and, and what that's meant to us because music is nourishing. There's, mm-hmm. there's a healing power to it. Why do you think listening to a performance collectively as a, as a community is so powerful? Um, there, you know, there, there have been studies that uh, an audience at a live performance um, will end up having similar brain activity. Uh, their, their kind of brain waves will line up together. I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen these studies in a long time. I don't know if it goes so far as to like heartbeats kind of line up. But um, there's, there's a collective energy that goes through an audience. And you know, without even going that far, I I think we've all been at home watching a new movie by ourselves that just completely hits us unexpectedly. And the movie ends and we just, 
want to talk to somebody about it, but there's nobody there. And uh, it, that feeling kind of gets lost when you're by yourself. Uh, but when you get to be with an audience, you have that shared experience. You know, it's, uh, I think if a, a tree falls in the forest and you're the only one that sees it, that's kind of, it does, doesn't mean as much. Uh, and I don't know if it does. There is this this desire, I think, to share the emotions that you're feeling because uh, I think it was, I think it might have been Aristotle who said the function of art is is catharsis. Yeah, absolutely, and it's uh, just as necessary as experiencing art on your own. I don't know if anybody uh, spends much time as pre-pandemic, of course, uh, just going to like an art museum on their own. It's a very different experience for me, at least, than uh, going with other people where you can really set the pace on your uh, for yourself. You don't have any other expectations to meet. Same with listening to music, obviously. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have grown up just putting on headphones and listening to music and getting completely enveloped in the sound. And that's incredibly important, but the opposite is true where we have to be, it is a community experience. Uh, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it just, it means something completely different. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of art museums, your, your recent performance last month at the Figgy Art Museum was just lovely. Thank you. And um, yeah, in the second portion of the program, six bluegrass or, or folk songs really were performed, which were composed by Edgar Meyer and Mark O'Connor. What was it like to play the, that genre of music as part of a string trio? I, I don't really like uh, the distinctions between the genres. It didn't, I didn't go into it thinking now I have to act like a folk artist or a bluegrass artist. I, I went in there as myself. Uh, there were definitely technical aspects where I had to think about things differently. Uh, the way, the whole way that we approached this concert was, was completely different. Uh, we didn't have any music for it. We had to uh, transcribe all the music ourselves. Bruno, uh, Bruno Silva, our violist, um, is did the majority of that work. And then we got together. He kind of sent a rough draft to me and his wife, Emily, our violinist. And we would get together and um, just over text or email um, and really hash out the differences of you know, I, I hear it this way. I hear it this way. I'm not sure that what you're, that what you think is happening here, uh, is really what's happening. And it was a really, really fun challenge because it's so different from the norm of, you know, we have this music that has been published for 200 years and we just have to interpret the, uh, ink on the page. Um, but, and with that aspect, it's definitely in more of the folk tradition where it's kind of passed down by ear. And we actually run into problems when we did finally get it written down onto paper. Um, uh, we figured out all the notes that they're playing and there are a lot in this. Uh, we have three of the greatest soloists in the world, uh, all three trying to show off. Uh, so it ends up being a lot of really fun music, but, uh, it, it goes into the folk tradition of passing things down by ear where it doesn't, 
it doesn't really translate well to a page. These, the rhythms, uh, the notes, there's, there's a lot of slide. There's a lot of rhythms that don't quite perfectly line up in a mathematical way that you really have to go by feel rather than by metronome or by like the rhythmic distinction. And so we ran into a lot of those and we had a lot of fun um, being like, yeah, you're playing, you're playing the rhythms perfectly there. Uh, but we, it, it's not quite right. It's not quite sitting. Um, it, it doesn't have that ease, that, that beautiful quality that this music is, is written in. Um, and, but at the, at the same time, with all of those folk traditions, it still was classical music. Uh, it has, has all the elements that American classical music has. It's, it's taking from, uh, I think one of the earliest instances of American classical music comes from the Czech composer Dvorak, where he was spending a lot of time traveling across the country and he, he uh, traveling across America and he was trying to figure out what the sound of this world is, this new nation. And he put that into his, well, he has the, um, the American quartet and then he has the new world symphony and what he decided to do. And what is the same as what many European composers, when they find their, you know, the Czech sound, the Hungarian sound or the Spanish sound is they go to a lot of folk songs. Uh, they, they tap into the, to the melodies that are already being played or being sung in these areas. And so you have, sounds of you know spiritual music or you have sounds of native american music and um that ended up kind of defining this american classical sound it kind of made it different than all of the european music that was being comp composed at the time and that that tradition was carried on by you know aaron copeland when he wrote appalachian spring which um this concert that we just played is is mostly from uh, Appalachian Journey, but uh, a couple songs are from Appalachia Waltz, which were by Edgar Meyer and Mark O'Connor. And they both definitely uh, pull on the ideas of Appalachian Spring, which was written, what, nearly 40 years before them uh, by Aaron Copeland. And that's where they where they kind of pulled this idea of these genres kind of all have to mix together. This is, this is the American sound that pulls blues, it pulls jazz, it pulls folk, uh, bluegrass and classical all together. And they can't exist on their own. They have to, they have to kind of all exist together mixing. Mm -hmm. I love what you just described that more, expansive tradition of American music. And just to go back to Dvorak, who you'd mentioned, um, I had read something about him where he, when he came to the United States, he said, well, where is your folk music? Just like you had implied, he was really interested in um, spirituals uh, that were uh, sung and had been written by formerly enslaved peoples here here in the United mm -hmm. States and also by our indigenous American um, population. And and so the incorporation of that into his music is 
is is incredible. And we should also call out the fact that he spent that pivotal summer here in Iowa. Absolutely. It was, it was really fun in Spillville, Iowa. Um, I came across this quote, too, about Mark O'Connor, the, one of the... Um, you know, the composers for the music he just played, he, uh, the New York Times wrote about him that if Dvorak had spent his American leisure time in Nashville instead of Spillville, Iowa, his New World Symphony might have sounded like this. Um, so it, it, you know, there's so much in terms of uh, just what you're exposed to, um, those uh, kind of tapping into those deeper rooted sounds are, are, are super important. And I love the way they all flow together because they really do have this, this tradition, um, blues and, and, uh, and jazz, Mm -hmm. um, and folk music kind of, uh, really all coming together. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it's, it's so much fun to play and, and to, to play in both of those worlds. Uh, Emily Nash was our resident, fiddle player in the group in our in our trio and so there'd be multiple times where i had to ask her you know what how would a fiddle player play this bow because classical music is so even in how it's written especially before um before the 20th century it, it, it's it's all written in in four four or two four uh but it's it's almost a binary way which is how it works so well with our bows where we only have two options up bow or down bow. Uh, you know, the bow goes left or the bow goes right. Uh, and then you get into a lot of these fiddle rhythms or, or jazz rhythms and they are not nearly as even they, uh, you know, they will have accents here, there, it will, uh, completely throw off, the listener and it's intending to kind of throw off your expectations really. And so the fiddle players have to have just a lot of bowings, a lot of little retakes, you know, down, down, uh, to just to try to make things work out in a less, um, less structured way. There's a lot of controlled chaos in it, which is really, really fun to play. (laughs) I bet. And we're going to be hearing a little bit more of that music uh, coming up next month in April. There'll be a chamber version performance um, of Aaron Copeland's Appalachian. That's right. That's right. And that's, uh, that's a really great piece to play that that's a piece where he really started, um, exploring kind of the pentatonic scales and putting that into the American sound. Dvorak had that as well. The the pentatonic scale, just dividing, you know, an octave into five rather than into uh, seven and kind of getting that expansive sound. Everything just sounds bigger. You know, when they took the train across uh, the open plains, that they just saw how big our country was and, and still is and uh, wanted to find a way to express that musically. And they, Edgar Meyer and Mark O'Connor took those, a lot of those ideas and put it into this, this music uh, that that we just Mm -hmm. played. You know, a couple of years ago, I spoke with Nate Lawrence, who's um, runs this poly, uh, poly, an organization called Polyrhythms. And they, used to pre pandemic, um, put on this beautiful third Sunday jazz series. And he talked a lot about the pentatonic scale. So that must be present in many different types of, it's, music. it's all over because it, it's, it's so amazing. Um, 
it kind of has a magnetism to the pentatonic scale that uh, normal tonality doesn't have. The normal do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do doesn't quite have the the same uh, magic to it. Mm-hmm. Well, I was also thinking, you know, when you performed recently at the Figgy, it must have been fun because in traditional, in, in classical music, you you typically don't have bass solos. Hmm. But um, but you have that more with the type of music you were playing with folk and certainly with jazz. Absolutely. And especially when you bring Edgar Meyer into the mix, uh, one of the best bassists, mm-hmm. uh, certainly alive today, but uh, likely to ever have lived. Um, he has so much fun with the instrument. He writes so well for it. This is my first time actually playing anything by Edgar Meyer. Um, but a bass player in the spotlight is not always the most comfortable person in the room. Uh, <laughs> and so it took a lot to, to kind of get to that point where I really felt comfortable um, taking over and taking over these fiddle solos or these jazz solos. It was a lot of fun. It was a huge challenge, but Edgar Meyer writes so well for the bass and uh, it's, he doesn't write, it's not easy to play on the bass, uh, but it, it works so well with the instrument. He he has found a way to get around the instrument, even though it's so cumbersome. Um, he he finds these little like back doors on on tonality, and you know, finding this open string while we're, you know, my left hand's way up in the stratosphere, and but then he still has these open strings ready to kind of uh, harmonize with yourself, and it's really really fun. For people who may have missed your performance last month, is there still a way that they can stream it? Definitely. Um, our, on the Quad City website, which is qcso.org, the digital access um, to our concert is available until March 29th. What, what would you say is something most people don't know about playing the bass? Oh, how much fun it is. Uh, that, you know, we always get the joke, you know, don't you wish you played the flute, but never. Never. Oh, I guess, I guess only when I travel, but, um, it's yeah, you always have your dance partner right there, but the base is, um, we get to be the foundation and the simplest things, um, uh, when I'm, whenever I'm trying to teach young, young bass players, you know, you'll see a part that has just very little going on, uh, whether it's whole notes or just really, really slow, slow notes, not a lot happening. And that's some of the stuff that I absolutely love. Uh, and that's the reason that I'm a bass player. Some of these chord changes are just incredibly powerful, you know, one note to the other that will change the entire color, the entire, entire mood of a piece. And if you play it a little bit differently, you can get the entire ensemble to pl- change how they play. And it's a, a really uh, amazing feeling. Why is it called the double bass? Uh, because in typical four-part harmony, you know, you have soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Um, and the bass voice um, was played by the cello and then it was filled out by the double bass. So we are not tuned the same as a cello. 
were tuned in fourths instead of fifths as the other string instruments are. Uh, that's kind of a holdover from our, our gamba days, but, um, the double bass is an octave below the cello and it doubles for a long time until you get into the, the romantic period in the mid 1800s. Uh, we just played exactly what the cellos played just an octave lower. So we, so we doubled them. <laughs> You'd mentioned that word gamba. I, I heard that the bass is somewhat of a hybrid between the gamba and the violin family, but what, what is a gamba? Uh, a gamba is an earlier string instrument than the violin and it's a, not, um, not nearly as loud. Uh, the construction isn't quite as, um, uh, I guess efficient at, uh, projecting acoustically. So you just play it in really small rooms. That's, you know, the chamber music it would be just in a small chamber with friends it wasn't meant for the large concert halls that the modern string family is. Mm -hmm. And it was built a little bit differently. Um, you would often have frets. You would wrap strings around the neck to act as, uh, as frets. And there, there could be, there'd be more strings on a gamba. Um, and they were often bigger, um, boxy. So it was a little bit deeper sound than some of the modern equivalents. And eventually those were, um, uh, just it, people would experiment with how to build these instruments and they got more and more into the violin family, which mm -hmm. we have, you know, haven't really beaten today, you know, <laughs> Be because it's such a large instrument. I mean, it's the largest string instrument. H how old were you when you started to play it? I, I would imagine just their technical, um, impediments to playing this instrument at a young age. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, I was 12, I think. Um, is that right? I mean, yeah, I, I think I was, I was 12, 11 or 12 years old when I first picked up the bass. Uh, I'd been playing cello for three years before that. And the cello, I was kind of off and on. I got more serious in my last year of playing cello. And then I went into a sixth grade, um, orchestra, uh, the, the middle school orchestra where most people were picking up their instruments for the very first time. And I didn't want to be, you know, bored cause I could already play the cello. And so I decided it would be fun to like spend a year playing the bass. And then I, I would, the plan was always to go back to cello once, uh, the other students had, um, kind of learned how to play and kind of caught up a little bit. Uh, but I just had so much fun on the bass actually in that first year of playing bass, uh, was when I met Edgar Meyer for the first time. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> I don't know how this happened, um, but I, I immediately took to the bass. It kind of, it just felt natural. It, it fit. And, um, I progressed really quickly. Where were you living at the time? This was in Hickory, North Carolina. And oh. my, I had an amazing orchestra teacher, Sally Ross. Uh, she just retired last year. Edgar Meyer was coming to play with the local symphony. He was, he was doing a concerto with them. And since he was in town for a few days, he decided to do a masterclass at the local arts center. And my sixth grade teacher somehow got me on the list to play for him. <laughs> I opened the masterclass. I had no idea who he was at the time. Don't think he expected to be teaching a 12 year old that day. You know, there are professionals coming to play for him, but I played my, my little like, my, I think it was a little Allstate piece that was like half a page long. And it was great. I, I had a great time. 
and I've, your, I've worked with them since, uh, once I got older, but that and was, your that was career was start. launched from that. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and how wonderful to think about you performing last month. Um, some of the songs that he composed on Appalachia waltz and Appalachian journey. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, quite a trajectory. Yeah. Well, Kit, thank you so much for talking today. Thank you for, for talking with me. This is a lot of fun. Kit Poland is the associate principal bassist for the Quad City Symphony Orchestra. Don't miss the symphony's final Masterworks performance on April 10th and 11th, as well as an evening with Hamilton star Renee Elise Goldsberry on May 15th. Concert details and tickets can be obtained at qcso.org. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.